Well, um, I went ahead and prepared two sermons this week, uh, not intentionally. This often happens when you prepare a, a sermon midway through the week, the Lord just totally changes direction, and uh, it's risky to try to be sensitive to the Spirit because it means that midway through the week you have to change everything. So uh, in the end, I had to pick one, and hopefully I chose the right one, Uh, but perhaps in the sermon review class after, we can discuss the other one and uh, reflect on that. The psalm for this morning is Psalm 95. And the first seven or so verses of Psalm 95 depict an experience of unadulterated, uninterrupted worship. Worship. It's an experience that I would call timeless, restful, and overwhelmingly present and grounded. If you look at the last five or so verses of Psalm 95, you'll see a depiction of a time when the people of God closed themselves off from that experience of worship. They hardened their hearts, it says they put God to the test, and ultimately they ignored His ways. And as a result, we'll see that they did not experience my rest, my rest, which back then originally meant entrance into the promised land, the land of Israel. The psalmist, though, in Psalm 95, applies the words of this ancient story, which we just heard read, he applies the words of this story of Israel in the wilderness to the present moment of his audience. He says, today... If you hear God's voice, do not close yourselves off as they did. The result being for them that they did not enter God's rest, which as I said was the land. Now this implies that the psalmist's audience too can harden their hearts and that they too can miss out on God's rest. But here's here's the rub, guys. The psalmist is writing from within the promised land to a people who'd long since settled the land. The settlement of the land of Canaan had happened hundreds of years before the writing of this psalm. So what does he mean by my rest? Since it can no longer mean the promised land. Well, much, much later in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews reflects on this psalm in great detail in Hebrews 3 and 4. It's a passage about trust for some of the earliest Christians. Now, according to the author of Hebrews, since the psalmist here views this rest as unobtained and still in the future, it has to refer to something other than the land. Friends, I think that the rest of which God speaks, and we'll read the psalm in a moment, the rest of which he speaks, according to the psalmist and the author of Hebrews, is not the land of Israel. It's not. Rather, 
It's the rest that God himself experiences. What I would call the eternal Sabbath rest of God. The poem that I read at the beginning is from a collection of poems by my favorite author, probably, Wendell Berry. And uh, his habit was on the Sabbath day to walk into the woods of his farm with nothing but a piece of paper and a pencil. And he wrote poems on the Sabbath day from 1979 all the way up through 2012. This morning I'd like to talk about Sabbath. But Sabbath not as this kind of one day per week vacation, but Sabbath as a distinct, ever-present, a qualitatively different mode of life all the time, all the time. Sabbath living or Sabbath rest does not mean checking out or escaping reality, stopping all work, things like that. But it means coming fully into the presence of God and becoming fully present to God's creation. To Sabbath, as a verb, to Sabbath is to relish to cherish, to celebrate. It's to depend, to receive, and to delight. The way I think of it is that it's to live with with the palm of your soul always open, ready to receive and ready to give. Psalm 95, I think, points directly to such Sabbath rest, and shows us how to avoid missing out on it. So over the next few minutes, I want to explore Psalm 95 together, focusing especially on this notion of rest, true rest or Sabbath rest. So let us not uh, waste any more time, and let's jump right in, friends. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me to Psalm 95? And I'll be reading from the ESV, and we have a few Bibles in front of you in that version. Psalm 95, continuing in this series in Lent, looking at selections from the Psalms. And friends, as you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You may be seated. So I can't help but think that in Psalm 95, we've got this exciting celebration or party. Folks are singing, having a great time. And then we get verse 7b, where it's like, it's like the adults show up and tell you to turn the music down. Today, if you hear his voice, the rest of the psalm concludes with a kind of warning, breaking into this revelry, this celebration. So it's clear, friends, that the psalm breaks into two divisions, the first seven or so verses uh, being this depiction of praise and worship. And then the last, I guess it would be four verses recalling this story from Israel's past and providing a warning. So that's the way I'd like to divide the psalm this morning. And when we get to the section in verse 7b through 11, uh, we'll we'll talk about Exodus 17 and even Hebrews 3 and 4. So let us just dive in. The foundation of of Hebrew poetry, which we've talked about, is what's called parallelism. All over Hebrew poetry, you'll find this skeleton, this substructure that is parallelism. So items are placed in relation to each other, and it's up to the reader or the listener to tease out what those relations are. And that's where the meaning lies. And so first, in verse 1, we get, O come, this invitation, O come. And then we get classic, classic parallelism. It says, let us sing and let us make a joyful noise. And moving on to verse 2, let us come, let us make a joyful noise. So let us sing and let us make a joyful noise are set in parallel with each other. Let us sing, though, to, it says, to Adonai, to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let us sing to the Lord, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. This is parallelism, friends. These are not different entities. The Lord is not a different subject from the rock of our salvation. Now, why call Yahweh rock here? This is clearly a a metaphor, a figure of speech where something is compared with something else. And so God here is compared with a rock. That's a pretty common image in the Old Testament, uh, meant to symbolize stability, strength, security, refuge, and safety. You can even think of the New Testament, where we are encouraged to build our house not on the sand, but on a rock, a stable, solid place. But it says here, the rock of our salvation And when you think back to Exodus, people who'd been liberated from captivity in Egypt, 
miraculously pulled through the Red Sea, and they're thirsty. It had been days since they had had water. And they, they are longing for salvation, solution to their thirst. And where do they find it? In a rock. In a rock. I think, friends, that this reference to a rock, that God is the rock of our salvation, which, let me say, in 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies this rock as Christ. I think the fact that the psalmist mentions a rock here is meant to specifically refer to that story, where God provided material salvation, water, for a thirsty people in the form of a rock. The psalmist goes on, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise in verse 2, let us come, let us make a joyful noise. Let us come, this invitation from verse 1 is repeated, but expanded upon. Let us come into his presence, his being the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving and with songs of praise. We have all of these verbs used to describe worship, and the subject of our worship, or you could say the object, is the Lord, the rock of our salvation. And in verse 2, it says, we come into his presence with, you could imagine the Israelites carrying sheaves of wheat, but instead of that, we come hands full of thanksgiving and songs of praise. This is all meant to depict this almost ecstatic experience of worship, where you're focused on nothing else, and you are enveloped in this moment of praise and glory. Well, then in verses 3 through 5, we get some reasons why we ought to worship. We get the word for in verse 3, which could also be translated because. Oh, come, let us worship because dot, dot, dot. It says because or for the Lord, the same subject from verse 1, the Lord is a great God. And in parallel with that is a great king above all gods, is what it says. Now, this clearly is a metaphor. Um, God, Yahweh, the Father, is a spirit. Um, And so to speak of God as a human king is figurative language. The idea, though, is that we're meant to think of God as this king enthroned who is sovereign over all other gods. Now, let me remind you, friends, that in the ancient world, everyone believed in a a plurality of gods. Everyone believed in various divine beings that were attached to different realities in nature, especially. And so the psalmist is, is not taking the time to challenge or criticize that assumption, but is, is playing on it, is kind of riffing off of it, and, and is saying, as if today, the God of Israel is sovereign over Zeus, Hercules, Persephone, Apollo, almost assuming, granting the existence of other gods and using that to speak of God's supremacy, okay? So we we come in to worship the Lord because he is a great God. He's king above all the gods. Verse 4, 
in his hand, again, figurative language, the eternal spirit that is God before Jesus does not have hands. But to say something's in your hand means you have control over it. You possess it. Uh, you're, You're wielding power over it. It's yours. In his hand are the depths of the earth. You could say the unexplored reaches of the earth, as well as the heights of the mountains. Another figure of speech, which means everything in between is in God's hand. The psalmist continues and says that the sea is his, and his hands formed the dry land. We have again these extremes, the sea and the dry land, which in Genesis are are divided and rightly ordered. Those two are his, but here it says because... They're his not because he bought them. They're his because he made them. We are to come into the presence of Yahweh. We are to make a joyful noise, to sing to him, because he is sovereign over all of the universe, over all of the divine beings we could imagine, and because he is creator of all things and holds the world, as it were, in his hand. The psalmist then restates this invitation, and in verse 6 says, Oh, come, keep coming. Let us worship and bow down, let us kneel. Piling on these activities of worship. But here it says, let us worship, kneel before the Lord our Maker. This universal King creator of all things, is now brought into our personal circles, is said to be not only the the creator of the universe, but the creator of you and me, our maker. Verse 7, he is our God. And then we get this image. You'd expect we are the sheep of his pasture, the people of his hand, The psalmist mixes those up, I think, on purpose. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Last week, we talked about God shepherding our souls, almost belaying our souls, protecting us with his eyes upon us. Imagine human beings crawling around in a pasture like sheep or sheep in the palm of God's hand. The mixing of the metaphors here, I think, helps us see that we are indistinguishable from sheep, in a way. And God is our maker, and he is our shepherd. So we're invited to worship this God, who is sovereign over all things, but who is personally sovereign over our lives. And then we get to verse 7b, right before verse 8. Here we get the word today. Today. Now before we get into this section, let me just say a few words about the story that is referenced in this passage. So John so graciously read for us in Exodus 17, 
But this story is expanded for us in Numbers chapter 20. And so you can look there. We won't do it now, but the story is told in a different way with more details in Numbers 20. The people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And miraculously, the Lord, through this servant Moses, and through a series of plagues and miracles, delivers the people from slavery. And the Egyptians even pursue them. And with another miracle, God leads them through the Red Sea, parting the sea, doing away with the Egyptians. And then if you could keep reading Exodus 15, 16, 17, right after this, the people get thirsty. And friends, I'm not talking about the passage John read. They get thirsty and complain to the Lord through Moses. And God graciously gives them water from a spring. And then they go on and they get hungry, and they complain, and they grumble. They forget the, the miracles that God had just done in liberating them from Egypt, but helping them pass through the Red Sea. They complain, and God gives them quail and manna, bread from heaven. After this, they get thirsty again. Thirsty again. God has just fed the more than 5,000 in the wilderness, given them water from a spring, and they complain again. And that's the story that John read in Exodus 17. Because they complained, God was this close, friends, to exterminating them right on the spot. But if you read in Numbers, you'll see that Moses steps forward and intercedes for them. He says, do not do this, Lord. That is not your character. And so God does not exterminate them. He listens to Moses. He changes his mind. But he does not let them enter the promised land, his rest. That's the story. The psalmist looks directly at you and me. This word today, friends, is so striking. Because if you write literature and you put in this word today, that means anyone who reads that document, even a thousand years later, will think of their today, our today. Not the today of the psalmist, not the today of Moses and Israel, but our today, this day. (laughs) Today, he's looking directly at his readers, at his listeners And he says, if you, I would prefer to translate this, when you hear his voice, God is always speaking. Are we listening? Today, if you hear his voice, do not do what they did. Do not forget God's so recent provision for you in the wilderness. Do not distrust him. Think that you can achieve your life on your own. Do not harden your hearts like soil that's so hard the water can't even get in. Do not harden your hearts like they did. When your fathers, it says, two parallel items, put me to the test, 
and put me to the proof. This is to scrutinize or criticize, to examine, to kind of look for fault and guilt. And your fathers did that to me, though they had seen my work, not years ago, but days ago, though they had seen my work. He says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. The fact that God, capable of limitless emotion, in his mercy did not exterminate these people, but lived with this loathing for 40 years. He says, they are a people who go astray in their heart. Life is a journey, friends. The heart is walking on a path and it's gone astray. They have not known my ways. This could be translated roads or paths. The soul, the heart of this people, which is supposed to walk straight, hold the hand of God, depend on His law, which lights their path. They've depended on their own ingenuity, their own strength, and they have they've swerved from the road. Verse 11. On the basis of all of this, therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In Exodus and Numbers, my rest was clearly the land of Israel, Canaan. And the people who had hardened their hearts, the people of this generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who did not harden their hearts, All of those people died in the wilderness, and their children entered the promised land. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews provides a Christian reflection on this psalm and sees that the rest spoken of here, if it is indeed spoken to you and me, or even to the, to the psalmist's original audience, that rest can't be the promised land. It's already been settled. So what is it? Well, for this, we need to back up. We need to back up all the way to creation. If you recall, in Genesis, God makes the universe, it says, in six days. What's left unfinished, though, what's left uncreated, you could say, is creation's purpose. What is the purpose of the creation that God had made in six days? I think it is the Sabbath. Sabbath. Friends, the Sabbath, this eternal rest of God, Sabbath does not close creation, but leaves it wide open. It leaves it open to a a divine life of rest, which God longs to share with all of His creatures. This Sabbath rest involves a life of openness, dependence, a life of worship. It's it's a life not of striving, of ambition or achievement, but of receiving 
giving and delighting. I think the wilderness wanderings for Israel were meant to teach them this mode of life. By forcing them to depend on Yahweh for freedom from from Egypt, for instruction through the law, and for food and water. It was meant to lead them, I think, into true rest long before they entered the land. But friends, as we travel through the wilderness of Lent, I think we can learn a similar thing. By forcing ourselves to depend on Yahweh daily, not to achieve or construct our lives for ourselves, we too can experience rest long, long before we enter the land, the new creation. This eternal Sabbath rest of God, this life of worship and presence and gratitude is available to you and me right now in the person of Jesus Christ. By trusting in Jesus just enough to take one step, then another in following him. By trusting in Jesus, we're united to Jesus in his life. His life becomes ours. Which means that the eternal Sabbath rest that he experiences all the time is ours to experience too. It really is. I read recently that Nowhere in the New Testament Gospels is Jesus described as being in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. Dallas Willard talks about spirituality, pure spirituality, as being unhurried and full of gratitude. This life that Jesus embodies and experiences can be ours, not then, but now, friends. Now. But the only way to receive that life is if we respond to God's call today. Today. Let me close with this. Today, when you hear God's voice, do not close yourselves off, but with soft and open hearts, receive God's gift of true rest. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for this unfinished story, a story that can orient us in our lives story that can point us toward the only life that truly matters, the only life that is eternal, that is your life, Jesus. I pray this morning, in the middle of this season of Lent, that you would crack us open to receive this life for ourselves, not to hoard it, to close our fists, to keep it, Lord, but to share it with all the world. We love you and are so grateful for this true rest you have to offer. 
Help us live in that space today. In Jesus' name, amen.